passage, Paul continues to assert his independent gospel. It is this gospel that Paul lives for. It is this gospel Paul is willing to die for. And it is this gospel that Paul protects and preaches without compromise. Today we will learn that only when the gospel is as important to us as it was for Paul can it serve as the supreme basis for our unity within the church. And I have two points for us this morning, and uh, I'm going to do the first point uh, this Sunday. I'm going to do the second uh, point uh, next Sunday, so it'll be kind of a two-part series in these ten verses. But let me give you the first two points this right now. And the first point is the priority of the gospel, chapter 2, 1 through 5, and the unity of the gospel, chapter 2, 6 through 10. Point number one, the priority of the gospel, verses 1 through 5. The gospel is just as monumentally important for someone who's been a Christian for 50 years as it is for someone who believes in the gospel for the first time in their life. In other words, we're not only justified by the gospel, we are sanctified by the gospel. The gospel is a non-negotiable central component for our present-day spiritual growth. So if we have forgotten the luster and the beauty and the joy and the importance, if we have forgotten the soul-satisfying power of the glorious gospel of grace, we correspondingly lose the power to grow spiritually in Christ. Do you remember the first time you heard and believed in the gospel of Christ? Do you remember the season, maybe? You had arrived at the very end of yourself. There was nothing more you could do to somehow redeem yourself. You came to a place where you knew you were a sinner, and and there was nothing you could do to make God love you. There was nothing you could give God that would somehow obligate Him to forgive you. For the first time in your life, you looked away from yourself and you turned the gaze of your heart to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You you peered back 2,000 years ago and you saw with the eyes of faith Jesus bleeding and hanging and dying and bearing the eternal penalty and curse for your sins on a Roman cross. You believe Jesus conquering death three days later, rising from the dead. You turn from yourself and turn to Christ to follow Him. And then joy flooded your heart as God's grace washed away all of your sins. Peace overwhelmed your soul. Worship and praise burst into your inward parts like a flood. And songs streamed forth like a, like a fountain as you sang praises with the church. Then over the months and years, you learned that spiritual growth wasn't going to be easy. You started reading and studying your Bible, learning theology, learned how to pray. You started serving in the church. You learned how to share the gospel and evangelize. You started going to your first Christian conferences. You went on an SDM trip. Fast forward years later, and you know so much more about the Bible than you ever did, but for some reason you pray less. 10,000 sermons later, you don't grieve over your sin as you did when you first believed. Joy in the gospel feels muted. It comes to infrequently. Public worship has become a a routine, something you need to check off your to-do list. You remember when church, when you went, you, you remember when worship felt like you were already in heaven, and it's not that way anymore. 
you behave better around others, you know how to act, you know what to say in church, but you love them less from your heart than you once did. Your service in church used to feel like the highest privilege in life, but now it feels like a burdensome, tiresome duty that you don't get enough credit for. What happened? And may, might I suggest to you that you have forgotten to prioritize the gospel above everything else. The, the gospel got old to you. You thought, now that you're saved, I don't need it anymore. And the only time you do need it is during evangelism, and when do I ever do that? It's for unbelievers. It's not for me. I've, I've outgrown these elementary principles of the faith. And even though you know more about the Bible than you ever did at the beginning of your Christian life, you, you, you've never trusted in yourself more. And you've never trusted in the gospel less. And that, my friends, is a very dark place to be in. And this is what happened to the Galatians, only it happened much faster and worse than it does for most of us. Paul said in chapter 1, verse 6, I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. One year after Paul had planted these churches, the Galatians have drifted, and now they're enter entertaining faith in a false gospel of works and legalism. And so Paul, he continues his travelogue in chapter 2, verse 1, by again reaffirming the authenticity and truthfulness of his gospel. There are no errors in my gospel, Paul says. It is a gospel of grace by faith alone. You can't add to faith in order to be saved. It is a gift. It is pure gift. You cannot earn. You cannot pay God back for salvation. And it, and it is this gospel of pure grace that was given personally and directly to Paul from Jesus. And so in verse 1, Paul says, 14 years later, he went up to Jerusalem. And no matter where, whatever direction you were coming from, you were always going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was elevated on a mountain. And the 14 years is probably counting the time from Paul's conversion. So this is about 11 years since he visited Peter last in Jerusalem, mentioned in chapter 1, verse 18. So for 11 years, Paul never went to Jerusalem to get his gospel validated by the original apostles. The, his, his theology came directly from Jesus on the road to Damascus. He takes Barnabas, who had earlier looked for Paul in Tarsus to do ministry together in Antioch. Paul takes Titus also. And then, in verse 2, Paul says, I didn't go because the apostles summoned me. Like I was some junior. No, I, I went up because of, because of a res, revel, revelation. And, and the revelation he talks about is, is, a, is a mentioned in Acts chapter 11. Go there real quickly. This is the revelation that brought him to Jerusalem. Chapter 11, verse 27, Luke writes, Now in those days some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And... The revelation Paul talks about is the, revela the revelation that Agabus received. Verse 28, And one of them named Agabus stood up and indicated by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And as any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a con contribution for the service of the brothers living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Then go to chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul 
returned to Jerusalem, fulfilling their ministry, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So this is the occasion Paul writes about in verses 1 through 10. They bring John, they bring Titus, as Galatian mentions. And so, as they deliver this, this help, this financial help to the Jerusalem church in a famine, they also have another obje- objective, and, and the objective is this. They want to make, Paul wants to make sure the Jerusalem apostles understood the gospel and they knew how the gospel was applied to the Gentiles. For Paul, it was 14 years. He's been working with Gentile believers for a long time. He knows how to apply the gospel to the Gentiles. When Paul gets to Jerusalem, the the Jerusalem church is predominantly Jewish. And they're still figuring out things with respect to the gospel and the Old Testament law and Gentiles becoming Christians. Uh, P- Peter had just arrived in Jerusalem giving a report about Cornelius, the Roman centurion's conversion in chapter 11. It's all new for them. This Gentile, um, uh, this Gentile revival, people coming to Christ, is all new for the, the apostles in Jerusalem. And so Paul meets with the, the apostles in, in verse 2. And he says, I, I laid out to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation, lest I somehow might be running or had run in vain. If for some reason the Jerusalem apostles are confused about the gospel, if for some reason, even if they know the true gospel, if they capitulate on the gospel's implications, Paul is afraid of what it might mean for the church at large. He's not afraid of the gospel losing its power to save. He has witnessed that power for 14 years. He's afraid of of splitting the church down the line with Gentiles on one side and Jews on the other. He's afraid of of the kind of stability the Gentile churches would lose if the Jerusalem apostles the church's capital, if they somehow sent the wrong message about the grace of the gospel. So, and so he says in verse 3, there was this pressure for Titus to be circumcised. But he did not capitulate. Verse 3, Paul, Titus was a, was a Greek and he was compelled to be circumcised. And, and Paul probably brought Titus on purpose to draw a line in the sand, to make it clear that the gospel was more than enough for Gentiles to be saved. Nothing more was needed than grace through faith. But there were false brethren who, verse 4, had been secretly brought in. They were sneaking out to spy out the freedom they had in Christ. They were pressuring the group They were trying to convince the group that Gentiles, and especially Titus, needed to be circumcised. He needed to keep the law of Moses in addition to faith in Christ in order to be saved. There was probably some debate. There might have been some pressure to have Titus circumcised, not because the the apostles didn't know the gospel, but, 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 but because it would appease the false brethren who were a sizable force in the Jerusalem church. The apostles may have thought that these professing Christians just needed more time to understand grace. So for now, Paul, would, would, you, just, would you just have Titus circumcised for the sake of unity? But Paul knew 
There is no unity when the gospel is compromised. He says in verse 5, But we did not yield and subject him to them for even a moment, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. The gospel was too big. It was too important. It was too valuable, valuable to capitulate on. Not even for a moment, Paul said. Not even a little bit. And Paul was ready to split the church down the middle to go against all of the Jerusalem apostles for the sake of the gospel. He knew that if he, if he, if he divided the church between Jew and Gentile, as bad as that was, it was better than losing the gospel altogether. It was better than losing the entire church. So he says, we did not yield so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. You can be wrong about eschatology. You can be wrong about baptism. You can be wrong about the spiritual gifts and church government. You can, be on the, you can be on the wrong side of political issues, but you can't be wrong about the gospel. Because once you lose that, you lose everything. All hope for salvation is lost. And for the Apostle Paul, nothing was more valuable than the freedom that believers enjoy in Christ because of the gospel of grace. And nothing is worse than being enslaved under the tyranny of the law. Verse 4. These false brothers, they secretly were brought in. They, were, they sneaked in to spy out. That word spy has, is, a, is military language. It's, it's political language. They, they were spying out the freedom that Paul and the rest, of the, the rest of the apostles and the rest of those he brought had in Christ. They wanted to enslave them again. And Paul knew firsthand what it was like to suffer under a works righteousness religion. He knew the freedom of the gospel for 14 years. What Paul did in verses 3 through 5 was easy because Paul had a very big gospel. There was nothing more important to Paul than the gospel of grace for salvation and for spiritual growth. This gospel not only saved Paul on the road to Damascus, the gospel gave him a present-day freedom in Christ Jesus. When he writes in verse 4, the freedom which we have in Christ, that is in the present tense. Galatians 5, Galatians 5, chapter 1 says, it, it, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. If we lose the gospel, we lose our freedom in Christ. But what does that exactly mean? How does the gospel give us freedom in Christ? Let me give you three ways the gospel gives us freedom in Christ. Number one, the gospel frees us from trusting in ourselves. The gospel frees us to trust in Christ alone. The legalism of the Pharisees 2,000 years ago is still a great threat the vitality of our faith today. Listen to Luke chapter 12, verse 1, about this ever-present danger. Luke writes, At this time, after so many thousands of the crowd had gathered together, that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began saying to his disciples first, Be on your guard for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Listen to Matthew 16, 6. 
And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In both of these references, Jesus is not talking to the crowds at large. He is talking specifically to his disciples. The theology of the Pharisees, this works-based righteousness, is a danger for the disciples of Jesus. The Judaizers, these false teachers in Galatia, have been infected by the leaven of the Pharisees. The false doctrine of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees' theology, is threatening the churches in Galatia, and it threatens the church today. J.C. Ryle, commenting on Matthew 16.6, said, Jesus foresaw that the two great plagues of his church upon earth would always be the doctrine of the Pharisees. The doctrine of the Pharisees is our greatest threat to our spiritual vitality and our corporate unity. What was their theology? What was the leaven of the Pharisees? What was the theology of the Judaizers? Well, number one, it was first marked by a trust in the self. It was marked by a trust in the self while pretending you were trusting in God. And we, we, we find a perfect illustration of that in, in, chapter, uh, uh, in, in the book of Luke, chapter 18. If you could turn there now, Luke, chapter 18. Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two people went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's try to discern this attitude of the Pharisees in the words of his prayer in verses 11 and 12. Notice the text says that he was praying these things, verse 11, to himself. He's not even praying to God. Next, notice the Pharisee thinks of others as sinners, but he doesn't see his own sin. He trusts in his own righteousness. His faith in his, is in his own performance. He says, I fast twice a week. That was double the norm in those days. I pay tithes of all I get. He says he thanks God, but it, it is obvious he is self-reliant. And, and he notices the tax collector next to him, and instead of praying for God to show mercy to the tax collector, he denigrates the tax collector to justify himself. Now look at the tax collector in verse 13. Whereas the Pharisee thought of others as sinners, the only sin the tax collector was concerned about was his own. Verse 13, he was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. 
he was beating his chest. This was a, an exhibition of intense sorrow. In the Middle East in the first century, only women were allowed to do this at funerals. And so what, as this man is beating his breast, this is a humiliating display of sorrow. In other words, this man's faith is genuine. There is no hypocrisy in his prayer. His only hope is in God's mercy. He beats his chest, saying over and over again, God, be merciful to the sinner. There is no inherent good the man could offer to God. All he could do was ask for mercy. And so what was the final verdict for these men? Who was justified? Only the tax collector, because he humbled himself. The one who exalted himself, the one who trusted himself, was the one who will be judged in the end. Why? Because, listen, his trust in himself was a misjudgment. It was a miscalculation of himself because he, too, was a sinner. And sinners must find someone who is not a sinner for their righteousness before God. Sinners cannot claim their own righteousness before God because their righteousness is not righteous. Our personal goodness is ridden with sin and evil And the gospel is the good news that sinners can find forgiveness for their sin because of Jesus' death and gain Christ's perfect perfect righteousness through faith alone. We need Christ's righteousness because it is a perfect righteousness. And God has to accept that righteousness. He can make no other choice because God cannot deny himself. If you have no genuine joy in the gospel, if the gospel is not the most important thing to you in your life, If the gospel is not perceptibly and consciously changing you day by day, if the gospel is failing to generate love in your heart toward others, you are probably trusting in yourself more than you realize. You are probably more like this Pharisee than you would care to admit. Because the human heart can easily deceive itself. You can trust in yourself for so long of a time and wrap that self-reliance in Christian activity that you fail to perceive your own hypocrisy. John Calvin said this about the heart. The human heart has so many crannies where vanity hides, so many holes where falsehood lurks. It is so decked out with deceiving hypocrisy that it often dupes itself. Who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your own Self, Are you trusting in your own works, your own personal righteousness, riddled with transgression? Or are you trusting in Christ alone and his perfect righteousness imputed to you by faith? The theology of the Pharisees started with trusting in themselves for their righteousness before God. But it was also, listen, accompanied by a motivation to find worth and value in the applause of men. How does the gospel give you freedom in Christ? Number two, the gospel frees us from finding our worth in man's applause, and the gospel frees us to find our worth in God's pleasure alone. Jesus said that this was the Pharisee's problem in John six forty four. He said, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another... And you do not seek the glory that is from the only God. And this is what the Judaizers were accusing Paul of in Galatians 1. And Paul has to say, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or 
or am I striving to, or, or am I striving to please men? If I were striving to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. I used to be a Pharisee. I'm not a Pharisee anymore. I'm a slave of Christ. And ironically, what they were accusing Paul of was what they were actually guilty of. When you're trusting in your own works to get you into heaven, you're automatically the kind of person who finds validation and worth from other people. Paul said in Galatians 6.13, For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they want, you to, but they want to have you circumcised, circumcised so that they, mo- they may boast in your flesh. They, they're doing it to, so that they may boast, that, so that they may, they may receive glory from others. They're doing this to, to win approval from their peers. Sometimes we find too much security and significance from the things we do. It is easy to live a certain way, to serve, to serve in the church, to ascribe to a doctrinal statement, to belong to a Bible a Bible teaching church driven, however, by a deep-seated, deep-seated insecurity that longs for the approbation of others. The things we do at work or in the church may appear like we're committed to God when in actuality we are just really seeking the approval of, of others. Instead of wanting to please Christ, we're chasing after the praise of other people. This is the leaven of the Pharisees Jesus warned us about. C.S. Lewis described this growing hypocrisy in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, when as as an unbelieving boy, he allowed himself to be prepared for confirmation in the Anglican church. There there, there was a ritual where he would profess faith in Christ. The problem was he had no faith. But in order to win the approval of his father, he went ahead, quote, in total disbelief, acting apart, eating and drinking my own condemnation. C.S. Lewis said this, Cowardice drove me into, into hypocrisy and hypocrisy into blasphemy. How much of what you do is motivated by the, the, the approval of others? Only genuine faith in the gospel can give you freedom from the shackles of other people's approval. Daily, conscious, deliberative, thoughtful faith in the gospel every day gives you the freedom to obey God's word and to serve his church motivated, listen, by the reality that you are already accepted and loved in Christ. We must live by faith that we are already perfectly loved and cherished and accepted by Christ. And out of this faith in that truth, that gospel reality, we then can serve the Lord with this freedom of a heart full of joy and thanksgiving. You are not accepted by God because of what you do every day. You are accepted by God because of what Christ has already done for you. 
Throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees, they were always afraid of people. They despised people because they thought they were more righteous than everybody else, while also being afraid of the same people because they were afraid of losing their admiration. They were kind of like movie stars who make their living off millions of dollars, millions of adoring fans, but hate signing autographs. The leaven of the Pharisees, it, it affects the way you treat other people. Legalism doesn't handle conflict and criticism, criticism very well. When your self-identity is rooted in your performance before others, you will necessarily be overly attached and sensitive to the opinions of others toward you. The same people you think you're better than. Christian parents need to be aware the danger of the leaven of the Pharisees on our children because children naturally want to please their parents, especially when they're young. Young children are very prone to acting like Christians motivated solely by wanting to win their approval, wanting to win the affection of their parents. And so parents must walk the tightrope of telling our children that we want them to trust in Christ because we love them while warning them at the same time that following Christ must never find as its basis the pursuit of my approval and affection as their parent. You cannot follow Jesus in order to win the approval of others. You must follow Jesus because you personally know and experience the greatness of his love for you. How does the gospel give us freedom in Christ? Number three, the gospel frees us from a heartless, formal religion. The gospel frees us to enjoy a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're going to earn your salvation through your own works... You're going to need need to come up with traditions and rituals that are easy to do. And then you're going to need to ascribe incredible value to the keeping of those traditions and rituals. If you're taking the Mass to save you, the Mass needs to be a ritual like no other. If baptism is going to save you, the, the baptism has to have incredible regenerating power in the water itself. And this was why the Pharisees loved their traditions. This was why the Judaizers attached so much value to circumcision. Because they were blind to the, self, the all-sufficiency of Christ's person and work. They felt they needed to help God save them through rituals like circumcision. The legalist spirit in every fallen sinner is to turn religious works into laws that if kept, merit God's acceptance and favor and, 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 and earning God's favor, forgetting just how disqualifying our sins render our actions. And so we elevate rituals, we elevate our works to the highest level, and we minimize just how offensive all of our sins are to God. And no, I don't think anyone here this morning is actually tempted to get circumcised to add to their faith in Christ in order to earn God's grace. But we believers, we have our own particular ways of turning our religious duty into laws that we can trust in to save ourselves. How so? Ironically enough, we can turn the ordinary means of grace 
into means by which we express our self-trust and self-sufficiency in. We can easily turn the ordinary means of grace into means by which we condemn ourselves before God, like how we read our Bibles. Sometimes we approach our Bible reading like Pharisees. The Pharisees had a faulty theology of Scripture, in case you didn't know. Jesus explained their their erroneous doctrine of Scripture this way in John 5.39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that bear witness about me. The Pharisees' overarching goal was to master the Bible. They were fastidious students of the Bible. They weighed every syllable. They counted the number of words, even letters, in each book of Scripture. They viewed the diligent study of Scripture as the heart of godliness. The rabbinic Targum saw God himself as a diligent scholar, busying busying himself by day with the study of the Scriptures. End quote. They thought the mere attainment of, the, of knowing the words of Scripture would gain them eternal life. Rabbi Hillel said, if one acquires himself knowledge of Torah, he has acquired life in the world to come. And yet even with the, this, this great obsession with Scripture, this, the Pharisees failed to see what all the Bible pointed to. They knew the grammar, but they couldn't read the story. They read the notes of the music, but they couldn't hear the song. They saw the trees, but they didn't know they were in the forest. They studied the scripture, but couldn't figure out what scripture was always pointing to. And so Jesus comes along, and he says, Pharisees, here I am. You know that book you've been studying all your lives? The book about me? Hello? Pharisees were blind to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if every time you read your Bible and you end that time just feeling better about yourself because you've read it, and that's the habit of reading your Bible, you're reading your Bible like a Pharisee. And like a Pharisee, dry habits about personal quiet times can be, become laws you start keeping in order to stay right with God. This kind of rote Bible reading can turn into faith in Bible reading for your salvation instead of in the person the Bible is about. If more Bible knowledge isn't taking you directly into the presence of Christ, you're not reading it rightly. Every time you open the Word, the Word must take you to Jesus. The Word must always lead you to the cross. The Word must always take you to heaven where Jesus is. Listen to me. The Bible is an inspired treasure map that leads us to the treasure of Jesus. It is not a book to help you feel better about yourself. We can read the Bible in a legalistic way, and we can pray in a legalistic way, too. You see, the the Pharisee who prayed how great he was compared to the tax collector, Luke says, he 
he wasn't praying to God. He was praying to himself. Are, are you praying to yourself or are you really praying to God? When you sin against God and ask him for forgiveness in prayer, God is not an automatic soda machine where you put in your $1 prayer and out comes a can of grace. If that's how you confess sin, where you name the sin, you ask God for forgiveness, and now you feel better because you did that little ritual, you got a problem. If the assurance of your forgiveness derives because of the prayer in and of itself that you prayed, you're trusting in yourself to forgive you. You're just praying to yourself. And although you never admit it, that's just basically trying to earn your salvation. Prayer doesn't save you. Prayer connects us to the one who saves us. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. When you confess your sins, every time you confess your sins, we look at the cross. We go to the cross every time we confess our sins. We tell the Father something like this. Father, I have sinned against you in this particular way. The sins that Jesus died for on the cross 2,000 years ago, I just committed. I just did those sins. See, that kind of confession is a prayer that will break your heart. That kind of prayer will humble you every time. That kind of prayer will crush you. Only when you see your sins in the piercing light of the cross will you ever take your sins seriously. But the same gospel that will break your heart is the gospel that will give you supreme confidence that all your sins have been forgiven. So in that same prayer, as we think about Jesus dying on the cross for us, we are broken by our sins, and at the same time, we are also given no greater assurance that all our sins have been forgiven. And it is out of this gospel assurance we can have the boldness to ask God for power to crucify our sins when temptations come again. The gospel humbles us, and the gospel lifts us up to the throne room of God, boldly asking for forgiveness. We always need the gospel. We needed the gospel when we first came to Christ. We need the gospel today and tomorrow when we go to Christ for his mercy and grace. Listen to me. If prayer isn't leading you directly into the presence of Jesus, you're not praying right. Stop praying to yourself. You're the only one who is hearing it. Pray to the Father through the Son, beholding the crimson glory of the cross. And it is this gospel that Paul was protecting for the Galatians and for you and me. And it is this gospel that all the, apostle, all the apostles with Paul here in these first ten verses of Galatians finally agree on, which becomes the basis of their unity in verses 6 through 10, a unity we're going to consider next Sunday. 
if the gospel is not the supreme basis for our unity in Christ, nothing else will give us unity. But in order for the gospel to forge that unity, it must be a gospel big enough, great enough, glorious enough, satisfying enough for every believer. If, you're, if, if my gospel is small and truncated and yours is wide and, and great and tall and monumental, we're not going to be able to join forces together. If my gospel is small and irrelevant and rote, if my gospel is boring, the smallest difference will push us away from each other. How big is your gospel, brothers and sisters? How grand is your gospel? How glorious is your gospel? Do you love it with all your heart? It needs to be big if we're going to be one people. Next Sunday, we will finish up this passage and we'll consider how the greatness of the gospel glues us together, united as one gospel people. Let's pray. Father, every word in your word is truth. Every word is important. And we want to be on the same page in, in every detail of Scripture. But we also want to recognize, as Paul said, that the gospel is of first importance. We want to recognize what Jesus said, that there are weightier matters of the law. Some parts of the law are heavier than others. Some of us, we're all mixed up. We're all, we, we, we've got these preferences that we elevate to, to the importance of the cross. And then we, we devalue the, the cross to the, to the level of preferences. We're all mixed up. We, we, don't, know how to, we don't know how to love each other because we, we fail to see the glory of the gospel. We, we fail to see it's it's grand importance. It's first importance. And so we struggle along. We trudge. We read our Bibles. We pray. We, we don't know what's wrong. We're just, we just go to church and we're just going through the motions and, we're, and we're, we're like, what is going on? So if that's us. And it's many of us in, in, in various degrees... Lord, we pray that you would awaken our spirits and help us to see the bright, burning blaze of the gospel of Christ, we ask. In Jesus' name.